2: 18 plus.
1: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined via Google Hangout again by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you doing?
2: Oh, one foot in front of the other. Leslie, one foot in front of the other. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Everyone's still healthy and watching a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine still. And family's good in New York. Family's good in Seattle. Family's good in L.A. So... No real complaints, I guess, on that front.
2: Let us keep the complaints to a minimum, for we are a happy and upbeat podcast. Listen to us. Happy, upbeat. Happy, upbeat. Not like <laughs> last week. <laughs> OK, we are going to try to be peppy. And also, there's some news this week. So let's get to headlines.
1: Yeah, there's a few headlines, Dan. Why don't, why don't you start us off?
2: Up first, Russian Doll co-creator Leslie Hedland will serve as showrunner on a new female-driven Star Wars TV series for Disney+. That sounds good. I would like to watch that.
1: Um, Details of which are scarce, as in typical Lucasfilm fashion.
2: Well, but also, you know, no one's actually making anything now. So, you know, it's a good thing to think about. And I am all for it. But people are writing, Dan. (laughs) Exactly. People are definitely writing. So this is something to be happy about, even if we don't actually see this thing until 2022. Who knows?
1: In other news, Apple has ordered The Shrink Next Door, a limited comedy series starring Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell, who will share the screen together for the first time since Anchorman 2. Dan, sounds fun.
2: Sure. Why not? I guess I would watch that. And then there's... I would also watch an Anchorman TV series. Sure. Why not? Again, I, at this point, I'd watch anything. So, But yeah, <laughs> that, that is totally a thing I would watch. Um Staying at Apple, they've ordered and apparently already launched a short form Fraggle Rock series that was entirely shot on iPhones, which is a little perplexing. But on the other hand, Fraggle Rock was a very important part of my childhood. How about yours, Leslie?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't. I was never uh, big on the Fraggle Rock stuff. I was always all, all about Muppets. And that was that was my jam. I well, was a Muppet girl.
2: You could have been. Both. I mean, Fraggle Rock, they they were Muppets. <laughs> or it wasn't Muppets.
1: like I had it wasn't like I made the conscious choice, like I'm only going to watch the Muppets. I was a kid. I just that's when I think about, you know, when I remember the things that I watched as a kid, it was the Muppets. You know, I, I still have this. Uh, it's a cookie jar with the count. And I remember when I, I was eight years old and I saved my allowance and I bought it as a gift for my mom on Mother's Day. And the day I moved out of the house, she gifted it to me as like as I came back in to say goodbye Um, She's like, you forgot something and gave it back to me. So it's followed me with in every house that I've been in since. So Muppets, all about Muppets. Anyway, elsewhere, wrapping up the headlines, Saturday Night Live will return this weekend for its second at home broadcast. Dan, the fact that that SNL found a way to come back and deliver some much needed levity. I thought it was really great, even if some of the sketches were dogs. But I'm really looking
2: forward to this. I thought a lot of the sketches were dogs, but I thought that the overall thing that they did was a good thing for them to have done. And I endorse, honestly, I endorse any of these people doing whatever is necessary to try getting some humor out there. I, I continue to appreciate what John Oliver is doing. I continue to appreciate what Seth Myers is doing. I continue to appreciate even what Stephen Colbert is doing, though I don't watch it regularly. I like what uh, Trevor Noah is doing. Jesus et etc. So, anyone who wants to try to make me laugh, I'm going to endorse it. So, thanks Saturday Night Live, but seriously don't open with another not very good Pete Davidson musical number. I mean, come on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top 5.
2: Number 1. Up first this week, HBO and HBO Max together. HBO Max
1: finally has a launch date, May 27th. The streamer from Warner Media will officially enter the streaming wars when it launches in late May with a $15 a month service. It's launching with 10,000 hours of content, including the entire Friends and Big Bang Theory libraries, plus a handful of originals, among them Anna Kendrick Vehicle, Love Life, the anthology from Paul Fig, documentary on the record, a dance competition series called Legendary, and Sesame Workshop's Late Night Entry. The Not Too Late Show with Elmo, which sounds super fun. The trailer is super cute and has already garnered a fair amount of attention online.
2: Yeah, because Elmo is garbage. What? Elmo's- Why are you ragging on Elmo? Oh, come on. You are old enough that you are not supposed to be an Elmo fan either.
1: I remember having to find a Tickle Me Elmo for my first girlfriend who was like obsessed with Elmo and just paying like $50 from finding some guy who was selling him out of the back of his trunk. Like... I remember I'm old enough to remember that being a cultural phenomenon, but also what's wrong with Elmo? Why does that a make fun of Elmo? What Elmo do to you?
2: Elmo is a usurper. Every second of screen time that Elmo gets, he stole from Grover. Grover, who is in all ways a superior character on Sesame Street. Team Grover, to hell with you, Elmo. And I guess I will watch the not too late show with Elmo just so that I can make fun of Elmo more. Anyway,
1: Elmo going to run and cry in corner. Be about to physically fight you later.
2: <laughs> I am so glad that you're, that that you're going to do that. You're going to do the rest of this podcast in your Elmo voice. Ooh, no, boy. please.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get back back at HBO Max. Like, look, you know, they don't have. They're not going to have the Friends reunion. Obviously, they couldn't shoot that before you know the world shut down. And they're going to have other originals down the line, just not at launch. So Greg Berlanti's got a show starring Kaylee Cuoco called The Flight Attendant. They'll have, you know, the forever delayed next season of Search Party. But, you know, the bigger question for me is what's their Mandalorian? I don't think that they're going to have this must-see original show like at at launch like Disney Plus had with Mandalorian. But I think... In this case, and, you know, if we are still, if much of the country is still in quarantine at the end, you know, come March 27th, I think having Friends and Big Bang Theory streaming, I think that'll be the Mandalorian.
2: Yeah, I think they are definitely going to have to be assuming that people are going to want this service for the library content, basically. And that is a thing that they have in tremendous quantities and people will surely be wanting library content to fill days. But yeah, I'm, you know, look. The new season of Search Party was never going to be (laughs) Warner Max's Mandalorian. On the other hand, I'm a little bit surprised that that's not part of the initial launch, given that 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 thing has been in the can forever. I mean, that's just an easy thing that you could have thrown in where you guarantee it has an established audience. You could put it on the air. People would go, "Okay, yay, new season of Search Party. So, I don't get that. Yeah, but that. most
1: people who watch Search Party watched it online anyway. So, and we don't look, maybe they will add it for launch. We, who knows? I mean, there's still, you still have a month to go, Dan.
2: It's still, but it's still a thing they could have known that they had because they've had it in their back pocket forever. So, but yeah, it, I think they expected that the Friends live reunion that was going to confuse people because people were going to think it was actually a New Friends episode and then it wasn't going to be a New Friends episode. It was just going to be an episode of like Graham Norton or something with the Friends cast, basically. Uh, Yeah, that was going to be a thing that was going to get people in the door and they don't have that anymore. And I guess I understand why they don't want to do it on the cheap, because it's not like you couldn't, for whatever amount of money they had there, get those guys on Zoom and have them do a Zoom reunion as well. But that would the
1: (laughs) the value is having them all together on that famous set where they originally shot the show. And, And I think to do so in front of a live audience, you have the energy of that crowd. Like, look, I mean. I am trying so hard to get my foot in the door at that taping whenever that taping is just the idea of being in the room just has me so excited. So I can't even imagine, imagine if you're Jennifer Aniston you haven't been in a room with all these people in a way or back on that soundstage, you know, like, it's just like, you, you can't do it remotely.
2: Well, you know, you definitely can't do it remotely. And you shouldn't even. Yeah. Eh, But again, if what you want is to get people curious about your new offering, you no longer have that thing. So whatever. Anyway, we will we will definitely be talking more about this as we go along. There's also a ton of news from the HBO mothership and the fact that we are already combining HBO and HBO Max into a single segment gives you some indication once again of how the brand is being somewhat devalued by this uh, streaming service. So whatever.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So looking at this week in HBO News, our colleague Bryn Sandberg reported that the cast of breakout hit Succession has all scored sizable pay raises ahead of season three. Fear not. Logan Roy will still make more than everyone else. Elsewhere, Westworld has been renewed for a fourth season. Sources tell me that showrunners Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan already have deals in place to remain on board for up to a sixth season. That was all part of a a bigger cash component of their deal with with Amazon because they basically asked for the pay up front from Warner Brothers to do three more. What at the time was three more seasons of Westworld. So they got paid for that at the same time that they got paid from Amazon. So. Wrapping up in development news, Dwayne Johnson and Issa Rae are teaming for a wrestling drama that is in development for HBO proper.
2: Uh, I wish I could be more excited about the Westworld news. Uh, Whatever initial enthusiasm I had for this new season after the first episode has pretty much dwindled at this point, and now the show basically just exhausts me. And I have to say that the, uh, the story that Bryn wrote about the succession pay raises, while a Terrific story and a great piece of reporting also made me extremely sad because there was a part of me that had been hoping that because I didn't know if they'd begun production yet on the third season, that they already had, and that come June a new season was just gonna pop up on HBO and we're gonna be like, yay, new season of succession. Instead, apparently they were supposed to start production this month, and guess what? That means they're not doing it, and that means that a new season of succession is way, way, way too far away. And that makes me sad. So I kind of I read that story that Bryn wrote and ultimately ended up feeling very resentful because she broke my heart regarding the third season Succession. I mean, of Succession.
1: we also kind of knew that that Succession was among <laughs> the shows impacted in terms of production delays. But but yeah. And look, I thought we were going to try and stay upbeat on this podcast today.
2: Oh, but still, I'm just I'm just saying what my reaction was to that. I story. Know. I, I
1: miss it, too. But but you know what you do have coming up? One of your favorites What? You nagged me, not you didn't nag me, but you kind of politely (laughs) pushed me and goaded me into watching this show last year. And then we did a year end interview with someone (laughs) and you have an entire season of screeners waiting. The next season's in a can. Do you want to say what show it is and plug
2: one of your favorites? Well, you're referring to Rami and I'm definitely looking forward to that. And both Rami and Succession were in my top five for last year. And so I can definitely take excitement slash celebration from that show returning. But you know, uh, and given the the new season of Better Call Saul just ended, and that was pretty fantastic, but now it's over. It's it's, it's a lot of mixed feelings, Leslie.
1: I know, but you, you know, it's our responsibility to try and find ways to take care of ourselves and our mental health and well being during this this period, and. You uh, you and um, uh, Ingrid Kang, our other TV critic, launched a great thing this week where you kind of did like retro review discussion about classic shows. And I know you spent all weekend watching um, the entire season of My So-Called Life. I think that that's an inspired idea and I can't wait to see what you do next. And I secretly hope it's Freaks and Geeks.
2: It will probably not be Freaks and Geeks next, because going from my so-called life to Freaks and Geeks would just mean that we were doing a retro rewatch of our favorite TV show, of our favorite teen TV shows from the past 20 years. And that's not what the goal was, but maybe down the road, Freaks and Geeks, because there's no bad time for that. Anyway, speaking of upbeat news, we should get to our next story, which isn't exactly upbeat for us, but it's upbeat for Netflix. Number two.
1: Up second, Netflix revealed its first quarter earnings this week and reported a massive addition of nearly 16 million new subscribers. The streamer had expected to add 7 million. That was, of course, pre-quarantine, pre-pandemic. But, you know, when you look at the state of the world, it's not, not a surprise to see that people are turning to streaming services and that that number more than doubled um, at the same time, CEO Reed Hastings was very somber about the gains given the reasoning behind them, and he forecast that the subscriber growth would slow as quarantine hopefully subsides. And in terms of its ratings, they revealed some junk about Tiger King and a baffling 64 million number attached to that. And then a Spanish drama Money Heist at 65 million. And this is where we basically make fun of Netflix and remind people that they count a viewer as anyone who watches two minutes of this crap. So two minutes of something that you probably turned off and or didn't mean to turn on in, in the first place. Congratulations, Tiger King. And that's 64 million number.
2: It's the number that we're making fun of here. I don't think either yes. one of us is questioning that Tiger King is a phenomenon. Clearly it no. is. And or sim- Money Heist. Absolutely. Money Heist is totally a phenomenon. Uh, but, but yes, 64 million, 65 million. These numbers are meaningless.
0: Whoop-de-doo! What does it all mean,
2: Basil?
1: But the one piece that, you know, from, you know, all of the Netflix headlines that that really blew me away was the fact that, that the streamer said its 2020 calendar and release date schedule would not be impacted and that most of its slate for the year has already been shot and is already in post-production. And that includes the, the highly anticipated final season of The Crown. Dan, you know, we were just talking about the fact that that work on Succession was delayed. This is just it's mind boggling that Netflix is that far ahead in production that it sounds like little to none of their 2020 slate is going to be impacted. So while we're seeing all these headlines about TV show dates moving around and feature films being pushed to next year, because obviously no one can go to the theater right now or should be going to the theater right now, Netflix is not playing that game at all. I struggle to wrap my mind around it and, and what's more they're saying that they're already deep into work for their 2021 schedule. Like. Just picture the mind-blowing emoji right now. Dan.
2: You know this doesn't this doesn't surprise me as much as it surprises you apparently because I have a sense of of how far in advance Netflix is working in a way that other people aren't, which is part of how when they have new shows to premiere, they they give us all thirteen episodes of something or all ten episodes or something or whatever, and they're able to put screeners up in some cases many months ahead of when things premiere. So I I am somewhat relieved, and I think. Honestly, that a lot of the streamers could make, if not the exact same claim, comparable claims. I suspect that Hulu is fairly deep into the rest of their 2020 schedule and probably Right, will but have-
1: Hulu's 2020 schedule compared with the amount, the sheer volume oh. that Netflix is, has for 2020 is...
2: It's like comparing apples to a Ferrari. It is not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. All I'm saying, though, is that at least for for people like me who basically have to be occupied with new TV in order to write about new TV, etc., I have been able to find some solace in the idea that thanks to the streamers, basically, there would be content for me to watch and review for many months. And honestly, audiences should find a comparable solace knowing that there will be fresh programming coming for a long time. And again, going back to the amount of my so-called life that I watched and watched it on the ABC regular streaming site, I also am very well aware because I saw five commercials for it every single episode I watched that Holy Moly is coming back on ABC. So people don't need to worry. There will be Holy Moly and a lot of Netflix shows for many months to come.
1: Yes. Well, let's go to our third segment. What do you say, man?
2: Sure. Number three. Up third, we've been looking for a little good news. And what do you know? We found some. Thank
1: you, NBC. The cast of Parks and Recreation will reunite. I cannot believe I am saying these words. The cast of Parks and Recreation are reuniting for a half-hour NBC special. It's airing on my birthday on April 30th, and it is benefiting Feeding America. This is legitimately the good news that the internet and the TV community, and, and honestly, that this show probably needed. The update will find everyone's favorite residents of Pawnee, Indiana, back for more. So Leslie Nope is determined to stay connected with her friends and colleagues during a time of social distancing. All of the stars are back. Amy Poehler, Rashida Jones, Aziz Ansari, Nick Offerman, Aubrey Plaza, Chris Pratt... Adam, Scott, Rob Lowe, Jim O'Hare, and Retta. Everyone's returning for the special. NBC says other familiar faces from Pawnee will return. Um, I'm looking at you, Jean-Ralphio.
2: And I'm looking Co-creas- at you, Mark Brandanowitz. No one is want- wants him back. <laughs> I just said it. If you- I mean, for heaven's sakes. the pre- Come on, Dan. That's literally the worst part of Parks and Recreation. The pre- the- but the press release that our very nice friends at NBC sent out said, quote, all of the original characters from the series will return. Well, Okay. I mean, Rob Lowe wasn't one, part of the original cast. For heaven's sakes, you know who was? Mark Brandanowitz. So what I'm saying is bring on the Brandanowitz. Or else it's not an original reunion.
1: <laughs> well, I, I am so glad event, that I'm special so glad we'll raise money for <laughs> I'm so
2: glad that we're on Google Hangouts so, that, d- I Dan, we, we so that I could just stare We strongly disagree on this. Oh, I'm just joking. I don't care if Mark Brandanowitz is there or not, but I mean for heaven's sakes.
1: This is the best part of my day. And what's what I love so much about what, what NBC is doing with this is the Park Special will raise money for Feeding America's COVID-19 Response Fund. That helps food banks secure the, res- the resources they need to serve the most vulnerable mem- members of their community. There's a whole bunch of sponsors um, here making donations. NBC Universal and the cast and the producers of Parks have pledged $500,000 in matching donations that will be made through May 21st this is just the perfect thing and and you know look i was a super you know a massive parks and recreation fan and seeing these characters back at a time like this and they're the fact that they're all doing it remotely it just it's it's what we need you know i think you know regardless of if it's good or not and we know it's (laughs) gonna be good come on let's be let's be real here this is just amazing. And I love that they're doing it for a reason and that there's a fundraiser component to it. This is just perfect.
2: It is a good thing to do. And, you know, we've been discovering that this is a thing that people are apparently available to do over the past few weeks. There have been a number of different casts that have gotten together for readings of scripts and all of that. So... Yeah, this is the, thing the my so-called
1: life cast, for the most part, just reunited for a Zoom session that, you know, the photos of which went viral.
2: I believe uh, I believe Chuck did also. I believe there are a lot of casts that have been able to do this and people are available. So for heaven's sakes, if this ends up raising a good amount of money for charity, which it will, I, I would love to see other people perhaps on slightly less beloved shows, but maybe on Equally, I mean, for heaven's sakes, you're telling me you can't get uh, a large portion of the cast of Cheers to sit around and talk and pretend that they're at a cyber bar to raise money for charity? Of course you can. So I I would love to see this be the kind of thing that other people will follow suit on because it's it's a good thing to do.
1: Especially with a charitable component, and you know, in, in the bigger sense too, this is 100% going to be a big ratings draw for everybody. I mean, the whole cast has become superstars, and I think, in in a larger sense, this is a great idea because these broadcast net- networks, as we've talked about before, they've got holes all over their schedules from scripted shows that that couldn't finish their season before the industry-wide production shutdown. Who knows what's going to happen with the summer? There's ske- holes all. You know, no one knows how long we're going to be in quarantine. No one knows how long the production shutdown will will, will continue for. So. It, This is just a really, really great and creative way to fill a scheduling hole and bring some good in the world and do some good as well.
2: It should be noted that this would have been a great thing to discuss with this week's Showrunner Spotlight guest. Unfortunately, our podcast interview this week was recorded a couple days earlier, and therefore it was not a thing that we knew that we could possibly mention. So enjoy our next segment. It's a really great interview.
0: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus
2: terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four.
1: Joining us this week via Google Hangout is The Office creator Greg Daniels, who this month debuts not one, but two new comedic satire shows. The first... Amazon's Upload takes place in the near future where people who are near death can be uploaded into a virtual afterlife of their choice.
2: Robbie Amell and Andy Allo star in the 10-episode series, which bows on May 1st. And the second show on Greg Daniels' plate is Netflix's Space Force, which Daniels co-created with his former The Office star Steve Carell. That one launches on May 29th on Netflix. Welcome to the podcast, Greg.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: So Upload is a lot of things. It's a futuristic satire. It's a philosophical exploration of life after death. It's also a bit of a murder mystery. I'm curious what the initial germs for the series were. And if you knew from the beginning, it was going to be kind of as genre diverse as it is.
0: Well, um, it's interesting. When When I pitched it, I pitched it as a philosophical, romantic, comedy, science fiction, murder mystery. (laughs) So when I was actually doing the pitch, I, at that point, I was aware that I wanted to do a big genre mashup, but the, the first like scrap of the idea, I actually had a ridiculously long time ago while I was trying to think of sketch ideas for Saturday night live, which was one of my earliest jobs. And I was walking around midtown Manhattan, with like a little notebook, trying to figure out some ideas on a little break from being in Rockefeller Center. And there's a lot of electronic stores down there and they were actually doing a lot of ads for CD players and the difference between digital and analog. And I was kind of just ruminating on what would be the ultimate digitizing. Well, it would probably be ourselves or our minds. And what would that be like? And, you know, could we, If we were on a computer then conceivably we could live for thousands of years and it would sort of be like devising our own afterlife and would it you know would you trust other people to to program your afterlife (laughs) you know uh so it was just sounded like kind of an interesting idea but it was really in a sci-fi direction not so much comedy so i i put it in my notebook and you know went back to trying to think of, um, something for, uh, Dana Carvey and, uh, (laughs) and, uh, but then at various times, you know, I, when I was starting as a writer, I always was like, well, you know, I, I love to do comedy, but I also like prose and maybe, maybe I'll write a book kind of like Michael Crichton or some, one of those type of books one day. (laughs) So this was my like prose project. And, um, at various times when I was underemployed, I would crack it out and, you know, I'd write, a chapter or something. And then in the strike of 2008, I was like, well, I can sell a book. So I, I kind of turned it into a book proposal. But then the strike ended and I put it back on the shelf and, you know, and then uh, I dragged it out again. It's like I have one idea every 30 years. But you
2: know? <laughs> <laughs> well, by that standard, why did this become the time that this was actually a show that was makeable?
0: Well, I mean, actually, everything got more possible and more relevant, I would say, for this idea because there were a lot more people. People had a lot more experience with first-person video games and virtual reality and MRI machines. And like all this technology happened since I had the first idea, which was based on a CD player. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. This is amazing. Yeah. And so then also there was a lot more monetizing of these kind of things. So, for instance, I had kids that played a, a thing called Club Penguin, which is like you're a little penguin avatar and you have an igloo and you walk around and your friends have igloos down the street. And, you know, and it's sort of this rudimentary virtual reality thing. But they're constantly trying to get you to buy stuff. So my kids would say to me, like, can I have, uh, will you approve, you know, a 99 cent charge for Clum penguin? And I'd be like, well, well, what are you getting? And they'd be like, well, I'm getting a new TV for my igloo. And I was like, <laughs> you mean you're getting a picture of a TV for your picture of an igloo, you know, that isn't real and you're asking for real money for it? You know, that thing became more widely known. And and there was like this growing dominance of tech companies And the power imbalance towards real people was so bad, like you, you, everybody was signing these terms of service agreements without being able to read them. And it just felt like it was more relevant that you could be living at the mercy of some tech company inside one of their apps. And that was your entire legal existence, you know.
1: And coincidentally, you sold this to one of the biggest tech companies, Amazon. Yeah. And this was developed, of course, during the Roy Price regime. The first day I remember writing about this was back in twenty late 2017. I mean, I, I'm curious, you know, pitching a show like this to a tech company and then having that head of the tech company change. How did the show that you ultimately made change along, you know, throughout the years or did it?
0: Well, I actually pitched it. Uh, and sold it first to HBO. So, oh, wow. Uh, in 2015, early 2015. So I, I was developing it there. And then when Michael Lombardo left, I got the rights back and then went to Amazon. And I had I had a, initially pit, Amazon was one of the places that wanted it in the beginning in 2015. And I'm still working with Ryan Andalina, who was the comedy mm-hmm. executive that I pitched to in 2015. So... There is, you know, I never actually met Roy Price. So um, my experience was pretty stable going through Ryan. And I guess the show started and it was a little more political with Lombardo. But the the funny thing was there was this presumption that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. And so the idea was kind of like the ability to program the digital afterlives was an uh, ability that the Supreme Court had only given to certain organizations, mostly religious organizations. This was this this earlier version of it. But, but then when I brought it to Amazon, I actually started off thinking that maybe it would be set at Amazon in a kind of a 30 rock thing. But I liked the idea that, you know, the tech company was the focus of it more than, uh, you know, any sort of... Uh, religious aspect. And so it kind of got more science fiction and more s- sort of secular, I think, when it was at Amazon and more about tech. But I think in a good way, because I think it got more comedic also, which was kind of the key for me to, to cracking it, because I think it had always been my Michael Crichton idea, but you don't really associate much comedy with Michael Crichton. I love, <laughs> <laughs> I love his work. But um but you know, uh, making it more of a satiric look at at our dependence on tech, I think helped it for me because i 'm primarily a comedy person
2: well there's it's obviously very satiric, but there 's also a lot of anger in it about late stage capitalism and about people being left behind as you were putting together the parts that felt saddest or angriest i 'm thinking of the the two gig people down in the basement, for example. Yeah. Were were you reflecting at all that you're doing this for the biggest monolithic corporation possibly in the world at this point?
0: (laughs) I think maybe the way to look at that question is a question for them. Like, are they aware (laughs) (laughs) that they are funding uh, maybe a critical uh, examination of some of the issues that they're also profiting from. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I'm it's not. I'm certainly not going to bring that up, <laughs> uh, since they're being very supportive. But um, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that you're when you look at the future, the the value of doing science fiction that's set in the future is really more about what it says about the present because you're exaggerating some aspect about the present. And when you think about everybody's expectations about an afterlife, there's two parts to it. There's sort of existing forever in a pleasurable, you know, place that is filled with delights. And then there's the fairness aspect of justice, and who who's there with you. And to me, because of the concept fairness was, you know, baked in as a as a satiric target kind of, and it just felt very relevant because we were, we're in a, you know, an area of, of growing income inequality in our country. That's different from when I grew up. I feel like when I grew up in the seventies, there was a lot more solid middle class in the country. And so the idea that like in the 1400s, like rich people could buy an indulgence and have an afterlife and the poor people couldn't. You know what I mean? It just seems like that it has to be about fairness as a concept.
2: Well, I, I kind of love the idea that both you and Mike Sherb made afterlife comedies about the idea of fairness in the afterlife and his approach is so totally about the ethical considerations and yours is so totally or not totally but is largely about the economic and sort of structural considerations. It, does that does that sort of correlate with what you think your own sort of different perspectives on the world are to some degree?
0: Well, that's like super interesting and I love the idea that people are <laughs> talking about it, you know, from from my point of view, I had I had dinner with Mike like in 2016 maybe. I'm not sure. And we were both about to turn drafts in, but we, we didn't mention what the subject matter was of the two <laughs> things we were turning in. And uh, I, I believe I was turning in to HBO my final draft of the version of this show that I was doing with them, and he was turning in The Good Place. And, and I, I don't know what was in the air. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I mean, in one sense, we we had just been working on Parks and Rec together and our brains were, you know, it's kind of like the way a, a house full of women will sometimes get in sync with their periods. Maybe our, <laughs> maybe our brains were like in sync or something. And then I also, Alan Yang did a show on yep, somewhat similar too. Uh, and he w- he had been in that room with us too. So I don't know, very strange, but um, I actually haven't seen either Alan's show or Mike's show because when You're working on something and you realize that you're in the same subject area as somebody else. I mean, my instinct is to not try not to be influenced. So I always had one writer who would tell me, oh, they just did that joke on The Good Place, you can't do it. And I'd have to to cut it. But apart from that, I also feel like there's 600 shows a year now or something. There's such a large number of shows that, you know, I think you have to treat some things as genres and not get too worried about being in the same subject area. But yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting.
1: Yeah. You know, I find it hard to separate a lot of my job from our current global situation. And I wonder for you, does it feel odd to you at all promoting a show about the, the afterlife during a global pandemic? I mean, not to bring down the room. It's not about the
0: afterlife. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I felt the show had its own existence, is there's nothing supernatural in this show, right? There is no should statement, and there's nothing about, you know, what actually happens to people. Uh, It's science fiction, and as such, everything is meant to be plausible and about human beings' behavior. So I had no idea this was coming when I worked on the show, but I believe that the, the issues of, you know, worrying about your loved ones and wanting to stay in touch after their body expires and finding a technological way to stay in touch with people that you can't stay in touch with now. I mean, I feel like they're more poignant in a way than, than ever, sadly. You know, everybody is like, the, for instance, this conversation we're having is happening over... Some kind of a technology it's in the same way Nora is only really interacting with the people up at Lakeview through a technology and my hope is that this will actually happen one day and quick <laughs> you know so that I can use it that's my that's my exit strategy for for uh, life here <laughs> is to try and get Amazon to be so excited about the show that they actually make the technology <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I think that I think that there is actually a lot of of sort of commonality in the discussions that a lot of us are having about estrangement and about kind of the alienation of technology that is very much in the water at this particular moment in our quarantined life. So, you know, you watch people having having sex in sex suits because they can't make physical contact. You think, oh, OK, well, I guess that's kind of. Yeah. <laughs> today, well, to some also, I think,
0: you, you know, we, you have to I mean, there's a lot of sort of criticism of it, but there's also a lot of optimism about it. Like I, I always said to the crew, I'm, we're not making a dystopia and we're not making a utopia. We're making like a middle-topia because in my opinion, as like a, a comedy person. To me, the most powerful law is the law of unintended consequences. And every time somebody introduces anything new in the tech area, you it's always introduced as this wonderful thing, but then you also have to stick around for the bad side effects like facebook oh. is oh it's just about connecting people it's not about destroying journalism and democracy all over the world <laughs> <laughs> you know so um so i think there's good and there's good and bad but like the character of nora who's you know the point of view character here is so optimistic about technology she's just trying to to get her dad to be uploaded so that they can still have a relationship and You know, she's she's a big proponent of it. And I think when you think about what the dream is, what's being offered by the technology, it's fantastic. It's like, you know, a way for science to help love defeat death. It's like the great dream, you know, of all nerds around the world. (laughs) How do you how do you extend your life? You know,
1: do you see this as an ongoing series or is it more 10 episodes and kind of a, a limited
0: run? Well, I mean, when I was working on it with Amazon, we talked about, um, I mean, like I pitched it with two, the first two seasons broken back in the day. Like I was always pitching it, even when I was pitching it to HBO, as it would it would have a beginning, a middle and an end. So I, I don't see any show really nowadays going 200 episodes like The Office. I feel like that's an unusual circumstance, but certainly something that's this sort of intense I don't see going that long, but I am certainly hoping for it to go longer than this first season. So,
1: (laughs) you know, Upload and of course, later, um, later in May, Space Force. These are your first two shows for streamers. You know, from a broader sense, what have you enjoyed most about working in that medium?
0: Well, you know, I love to launch shows. I think that's the most fun. I think that as they start to get mature, you have this feeling of riding a tiger kind of. In the sense that you launch the show and you love the show, but you can't get off the show. You know, you're scared to get off the show because you don't want it to crash and not be of quality. So in a sense, it starts to become your master and you, you know, it's not quite as fun and creative as launching something. So, for instance, I've loved doing pilots and I did the uh, pilot. I directed and produced the pilot of the show, People of Earth. I didn't write it, but I knew I wanted to direct upload. So I felt like I needed more sci-fi experience. So I took that show on in 2014 and it was super fun. I mean, a pilot's a long experience. It can take like a year to do a pilot and it's basically like doing a movie, but with the added danger that it might be a movie that no one ever sees, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and you've wasted a whole year. Right. But, um, I do love the, the launching where you're casting all the main characters and you're figuring out the look and you're figuring out what the sets look like. And, you know, there's something more fun about that than being on a show in season six. And everybody already has rules for what they want to do or what they think their character does or, you know, what what we as a show do or whatever. So one of the great things about working out the streamers is you know you do 10 episodes and it's like this big juicy movie or something that you work on and you're you're hiring and you're launching and da da. So between the two shows this year, I'll have 20 episodes that I've I've show run airing in one year, which is less than like a one season of like the office or for instance in season six of the office, I did that and Parks, I was co-show running those two shows. And I think I did almost 50 episodes that year because the office had 28 and parks had like 24 or something. And that was horrifying. Actually, actually broke me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't want
0: to go back to that. But anyway, so it's fun to work with the streamers. But the, 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 the weird thing is with these 10 episode seasons, you know, you kind of your writing staff disperses before it's over. So you can't really delegate as much like one of the nice things about working on a, a ongoing show that has 25 episodes a year is you, you're, you're, your posse is always around you, you know, so you always have somebody to bounce ideas off of, you can always show somebody a cut and go, What do you think? And you, can you find any place to cut here? Or, do you know, or, you, but when you're doing the streamer, like, for the most part, the staff evaporates before you're finished shooting. And and then you're all by yourself in post. But, so that's like one of the things that I guess has a good part and a bad part. And I mean, it's good that you, you're really very involved with all the details, but it is it is a bit lonelier than I'm used to.
1: Would you ever go <laughs> back and do a broadcast show again that was twenty a 22-episode season or a 10-episode and on broadcast at this point, like The Good Place?
0: Well, I mean, conceivably, but when I... So, you know, I didn't really do a lot of I I don't think I ever really did down the middle half hours in my career. You know, I started in late night and when I was doing late night for SNL, there was this feeling of like, yeah, late night has this certain sensibility, but half hours had a different sensibility in L.A. And we were doing, you know, the late night sensibility. And then when I moved to L.A., which I did because my now wife moved and I came out here, there was like a very small handful of shows that I wanted to work on. Like I, I really wanted to work on Seinfeld or Larry Sanders show or Roseanne or The Simpsons. And I ended up getting a job on The Simpsons, um, which was great. And it was also not a typical half hour. Like it was single camera because it was animated and and definitely like a weirder sensibility And then, you know, and then I got to do King of the Hill, which is also animated and single camera. And then after that, I did the mockumentaries, which, like, was also a particular point in time where I think NBC, who, who had, you know, had this wonderful sort of history with Cheers and Seinfeld and these great shows, and were now kind of trying to decide whether they were going to compete with cable like around the time that Kevin Riley mm-hmm. took over n b c and bought the office, and I think that there was like a window there where I don't know what how they they justified it to themselves, but the audience that they were going after was a pretty late night feeling audience, you know, and so a show that like the office that was very conceptual and had a somewhat unlikable central character, although we we did i think work on that. But, you know, it had it had a shot there and the whole mockumentary thing was kind of weird and it was single camera also. But it does seem a little bit to me like the networks are not where that audience is so much now. I mean, perhaps it is in some places, but my gut is that most of the audience that I've been writing for, from when I was either working on those Fox cartoons or the NBC mockumentaries that most of them are probably at the streamers now. Yeah.
2: What did you enjoy playing around with that you got to get away with on the streaming? Because the first episode of Upload, for example, it's a solid 45 minutes, which obviously no one would ever let you do on broadcast. There's also, there's some sex, there's some language, etc. cetera. What, were, what was the fun of playing around in an adult playground?
0: Well, the biggest fun to me was the look of it being cinematic, you know, and I obviously, as a director, was trying to get better at my job as a director and, you know, having uh, a chance to go for something with a, a great cinematographer. I worked with a really good cinematographer on both shows, same guy, Simon Chapman, who's Australian independent movie cinematographer. You know, so trying to give something with a great scope and beauty was exciting. The nudity uh, turned out to be just embarrassing for me, actually. (laughs) Um, I, you know, realized that uh, I didn't have strong opinions about the nudity or, you know, the positions that people use nowadays. You know what I mean? I knew what I wanted the characters to be thinking and feeling and everything, but um, I kind of relied on the actors more to uh, do the positions and then <laughs> that was with the pilot and then when we shot the series because there's some nudity later in the series we had an intimacy consultant which was also kind of funny because you know I think it's a really good thing for a production to do and it's very good for the actors and that you know there's this extra person there that they can turn to but the intimacy consultant was always urging, like to me, more more out there behavior than <laughs> I would ever have thought of. <laughs> so I don't know, that was, was quite interesting. But I, to me, I'll think there's just a really good joke. Like for the, the nudity in the pilot is meant to really show what Nora's life is like. And there's certain things in the future that have gotten, you know, more exaggerated. And so, for instance, property values in New York. Are worse. So she's sharing a very, very tiny amount of room with her roommate. And there's also this feeling of all the dating apps have gotten kind of even more transactional. So, like in our show, there's this app that they use called Nightly. And it's sort of like Tinder, but it's also like Uber in that you, you give ratings to your partners <laughs> afterwards and everybody's trying to get a five star. And, um, So part of that was just to, you know, to show this world that had gotten less romantic and our character was trying to still be a romantic in this very unromantic world. So the nudity had like a strong point to make and a piece of comedy, but made me uncomfortable shooting it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I do want to talk briefly a little bit about about Space Force you know this show is inspired by by trump's order to create the sixth military branch can you kind of walk us through your conversation with steve that ultimately resulted in the show and was it always the plan to have steve star in this
0: well yeah i mean the the uh, the sort of origin stories of these two shows couldn't be more dissimilar in the sense that i've been thinking about upload for forever and then basically trump did that announcement a very smart Netflix executive named Blair Fetter was in a meeting with Steve and said, you know what, how about uh, how about doing a show about Space Force? And Steve called me and said, what do you think about a show for me uh, called Space Force? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds fantastic. And it was, just, you know, just basically fell fell in my lap. I mean, I started, you know, thinking of ideas for that very, very rapidly, and it flowed very well. And part of it is, like, I'll do any anything with Steve Carell because he's this very rare com- combination of, like, an extremely nice, smart, like, steady, good person who also has the comedy skills that are unparalleled, you know. And as a writer, what you get out of that is, for me, is that, I mean, number one, he's my age and he's like from the Northeast like me. And so to me, like if I, if I was a great comedy actor, I'd want to be him. I'd try like, so writing for him is as good as I can get towards, you know, identifying with somebody. But, um, the other thing is as a writer, Steve is really good at expressing a lot of different things at the same time. So that means that your writing can have a lot of levels going on in it. So you can, you know, you can have... A dramatic story, you can have the comedy story, you can have a long standing sort of psychological arc for the character. And he's able to express all of it at the same in the same scene, which is just, you know, really fantastic and and makes it it's kind of like if you were going to drive a car, Steve is a Ferrari or, or some sort of car that's incredibly I have never driven a Ferrari. But. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like a, a great car. Okay. <laughs> He's a he can drive fast. He can take a corner. Well, whatever the, you want out of a car you can get out of Steve. So yeah, anyway, so I probably would have said yes to anything he had, but, but then the other thing was, this seemed like a really cool idea. And I had been wanting to do a military set show for really a long time. And King of the Hill had a Character Bill, who was in the army, and you know, we always compared that show to Andy Griffith's show. And Aaron Rubin, who did the Andy Griffith show, had done Gomer Pyle afterwards. And I'd seen this this very interesting documentary called Carrier, like fifteen years ago, about life on an aircraft carrier. And I just knew I I felt like that was a genre of TV that you hadn't seen in a long time but I wasn't sure how to crack it. And I don't know. So I've been thinking about a military show for a long time, but this seemed like the perfect way to do it because it combined all of the ability to create a new branch of the military and remind people about NASA and all the great achievements that we had in back in the day. And, you know, there's that famous uh, saying, something like, history repeats itself, you know, the first time is drama and the second time is farce or something like that. I don't know. There's some, there's some famous uh, quote like that, but just the idea that um, also, what do you want to write about? Like, like in the same way that I think Upload had taken on income inequality and, you know, possibly also environmental degradation in the sense that, uh, you know, we had to program a virtual world with beautiful nature in it because we were letting our World go to pot, and so I thought. Well, the big the big new topic for satire would be for me would probably be nationalism that's kind of running around, and you know, possibly the lack of cooperation and the shame. The just the it's sort of a shame the amount of nationalism in the world, and I, I'm not pointing fingers at our country in particular. It's all over the place, you know. It's going through Europe. It's in. Uh, Brazil. But it does feel like right now that um, the moon and the space, I mean, there was the space race, of course, with the Soviet Union. But when we finally landed on the moon, it, it was always an achievement for all mankind. And it was very inspirational and, you know, very positive. And there was a lot of feeling of, yay, human beings, we did it, you know, we got somebody on the moon. And now it feels much more like, like, the colonial land grab you know it seems like we're trying to get to the moon so's china so's india you know everybody's trying to get sort of a stake on the moon and it's might be for mining rights and you know i don't know it's just like a it's got it's like a different feel so it just seemed like there's examples of that feeling kind of all over the place where we need to be more cooperative to take care of the environment or deal with different problems that are across borders and yet at the same time everybody's putting up borders and and getting more nationalistic so it felt like that mood could be addressed in a show about the difference between the space race now that's being run by the military and the space race you know that was maybe more run by scientists back then yeah
1: you know, I know we are running a little short on time here, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the same question that I'm sure you get. You're so sick of answering this question. But, you know, first, you know, we know that The Office is a me- allegedly a mega hit, or we've been told it's a mega hit um, on Netflix, and obviously it's moving to Peacock next year. There was talk a couple of years ago about a revival of some sort, um, whether that would be with an entirely new cast or possibly with the originals or some originals coming back. Can you give us any update on what Is going on with that? Because we know that Peacock as a business strategy is looking for new material to pair with some of these tentpole libraries. Like there's a new Mike Sherb show in the works to go alongside parks, for example.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I love doing the office more than anything. And if we were going to revisit it, I would want to do it. But, you know, I am doing these two shows now. So in the near term, I'm definitely doing that. And You know, I think when all these rumors started to fly around, it was when they rebooted Will and Grace. And I think people were assuming that an Office reboot would be pretty much like that, would be getting the entire cast back together and just continuing where we left off. But, you know, I went back to run the show in season nine after discussing it with the main cast and part of our idea was we were going to wrap it up, you know, we were going to write towards the finale and have an ending. And, and so a lot of the characters left the office and we shut, we went forward by a year and we found out where everybody was. And you know what I mean? And there's something that felt like we, we actually wrapped up the storylines. We didn't really leave it hanging and I felt like we're probably not going to get every single character back. They're all doing all these cool things. I don't think people's expectation of getting back in the saddle and doing this show, more episodes of the same show was going to be realistic. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, people seem so into the show <laughs> <laughs> still. <laughs> uh, at some point, maybe it's unfair to... You know, be a priss and not give them
2: what they want. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And we like to we like to wrap these interviews by asking the same question, which I guess has become more poignant now that we're all in our homes doing nothing but watching TV. It seems. Uh, What are you watching and enjoying these days?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't watch a ton of comedy. I'll I'll say that right. I don't know if that's
2: common when you interview
0: people who do comedy. You know, like I was always watching Sopranos and and after completely mocking the Parks and Rec staff who were into Game of Thrones on the first season for being Dungeons and Dragons nerds, I got I got heavily into Game of Thrones (laughs) starting in the second season. So, I mean, I love those kind of escapist uh, uh, dramas. I'll tell you some things that I maybe are lesser known that I'm watching. I've been watching Occupied which is a norwegian drama that's on netflix which i think is very very good i just uh, started another show called kiri haji on netflix which is like english japanese type show i liked modern love for instance on amazon i thought that was good and uh you know, I'm trying to find things that aren't like Succession and Fleabag, which is obviously <laughs> <laughs> the ones that I love probably the most, but I think everybody loves them. There's a book series that I got into recently uh, by a British mystery novelist named Mick Heron, and that's going to be turned into an Apple show pretty soon, I think, called Slough House. But sometimes you just want the comfort of the stuff that you've seen before a lot, so... For instance, uh, I actually started up The Sopranos again <laughs> 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 on uh, on Amazon. They're, they have access to and And I started watching The Wire with my daughter. And, you know, so I'm kind of going backwards to a bunch of classics.
1: Well, Greg, this has been absolutely great. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking some time and. Talking all things Upload and Space Force in the office.
0: Cool. Well, this was a, this was a fun conversation. Thanks, guys. It's, a, it's nice to talk to human beings, real human beings. Yes. Well, I don't even want to hang up. I'm like, uh, I got I to gotta go, <laughs> go wash dishes.
1: <laughs> Amazon's Upload bows Friday, May 1st. Space Force on Netflix launches Friday, May 29th.
2: Number five.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new launches include Defending Jacob on Apple TV+, season two of Ricky Gervais' dramedy Afterlife and Mindy Kaling's semi-autobiographical comedy Never Have I Ever, both on Netflix, the final season of Vita on Stars. Showtime brings Penny Dreadful back to life with City of Angels, Normal People makes its debut on Hulu, and the final season of Blind Spot returns on NBC. Dan, big week this week. What you got?
2: There's a lot of TV this week. Uh, as we've mentioned a couple times on this podcast, I dedicated 18-ish hours uh, to rewatching My So-Called Life this past week, and that was a lot of time that I could have spent watching newer shows. On the other hand, it was a lot of fun to rewatch My So-Called Life, and you should totally check out uh, Ingo and my back and forth discussing what holds up in My So-Called Life, what maybe feels a little bit dated, and sadly, why we're all just a bunch of Brian Krakows. Uh, So definitely check out that back and forth on Hollywood Reporter.
1: And if you haven't seen My So-Called Life, just fix that immediately because it was great and it remains one of the great one and done shows.
2: It is definitely a show that holds up in most of the important ways. Uh, So, yeah. So what's coming up this week? Well, among other things, we do have the series finale of Homeland coming up on Sunday. I'm not really sure whether I'm excited about it or interested in it, but the ending of the penultimate episode was borderline shocking. So I'm curious how they're going to play things off in the finale. Uh, it's been a kind of up and down season in the same way that it's been a an up and down show for many, many, many years. But still, it's worth acknowledging in its significance because certainly when it premiered, it was often a very spectacular show. And even if it was not really spectacular for, say, the last six or seven seasons, it is a show of significance. So our colleague and friend of the five,
1: Mikey O'Connell, will have full coverage of the Homeland finale on THR.com, including a postmortem with showrunner Alex Gansa.
2: Indeed. So I have not gotten to several of the week's upcoming news shows, uh, but Inku Kang gave a great review to Never Have I Ever on Netflix. I've heard terrific things about that. And I've also heard very, very good things about normal people on Hulu. I have not watched the final season of Vita yet, but I've talked many times about what a very great, frequently funny Frequently sexy, very distinctive show it is, and I look forward to seeing how they're going to wrap that up. So in terms of things that I actually have watched, Apple TV Plus has a couple things. They have the Beastie Boys story, which was supposed to have various festival premieres. It's a Spike Jones filmed documentary concert about the Beastie Boys, uh, basically a filmed live stage show with Mike D and Ad-Rock talking about the history of the Beastie Boys. It's it's very loving. It's very soft. It's very gentle. The music is terrific. I, I don't think it's the kind of documentary that speaks to how innovative and frequently exciting the Beastie Boys were as a group at their peak. I, I don't think it's at all innovative and exciting as a documentary. But on the other hand, it speaks to the more mellowed middle-aged men that they had become and speaks to the sadness about uh, about Adam York's death and and how that impacted them and how, you know, how the group ended its run. And so if you're a fan, you'll enjoy it. If you're not a fan, it's a decent introduction. I don't think it's great. Uh, how can you not be a fan of the Beastie Boys? It's fairly easy. Lots of people aren't. Uh, what? Come on. I, I don't know. I, I like them. I like them very much, but I think the documentary does a very good job of covering the band's earliest years and looking at how Licensed Ill and Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party, and et etc. et cetera, how they sold themselves as one thing that they initially thought that they were satirizing and making fun of but then they kind of became that thing and so i admit that uh based on their first album i found them kind of annoying and grating and then paul's boutique came out and it's such a great album and the subsequent so albums great. are are tremendous and so if you go back and listen to their first album i think it plays a lot better than it did at the time because you can actually go okay You know, girls was a joke. Um, You you know, got to fight for your right was a joke. The fact that it was treated seriously is something else. But anyway, so that is a Beastie Boys story. Defending your Jake, defending Jacob on Apple TV Plus. It's okay. You know, ever if you watch broadcast procedurals, you've probably seen. About 50 episodes about parents worrying that their kids might be killers. It's a very, very common trope. This is one of those stretched out over eight episodes. It happens to star Chris Evans and Michelle Dockery, and those are pretty big names. And other tremendous people like Pablo Schreiber, Cherry Jones, J.K. Simmons. It's an amazing cast. It's a so-so series, maybe not even so-so at times, but the cast is so good that it makes it worth watching to some degree. And Penny Dreadful, I, my problem with the new season of Penny Dreadful is that it doesn't feel particularly like Penny Dreadful. It, it feels as if John Logan and Showtime kind of slapped the Penny Dreadful name onto something that was close enough to feeling like Penny Dreadful that they went, okay, fine. So so it's all set now in... Uh, in 1930s Los Angeles, it's got great atmosphere. It's got a very, very good cast. Natalie Dormer plays a bunch of roles and she's terrific. It's just not scary and not particularly mysterious and doesn't have the Victorian fun flourishes that the original series had. But it's it's very pretty to look at, wonderful production values. So, yeah. And, and that's some of the shows coming out this week. There are many more, and then there's even more coming out next Friday, because at least for now, thank heavens, the TV isn't slowing down.
1: Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. You can subscribe by clicking on the Newsletters tab on THR.com. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Hank Azaria to discuss the upcoming series finale of Brockmire.
2: Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always on Twitter, and we're always happy to talk with people on Twitter. So if you have questions, comments, or concerns, come say hi. And if you have questions that you'd like us to answer on air, we're always planning to do future mailbag segments. So you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number 5, at com. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan. And by the way, the Red Sox cheated. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.